Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The 13th District Written by Brand Whitlock Published in 1902, it takes a look at life in Washington, D.C. at the start of the 20th century. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thanks to Suzukinu for your shout-out on Instagram. I'm glad you're liking the podcast. Special thanks also to William Scully for your lovely email. I'm glad it's helping you out, and I promise I'll try and keep the stories boring. And as always, thanks to the Anchor supporters and Patreons that continue to sponsor the show. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If you find the podcast helpful, a lovely way to say thanks is to leave a review in your podcast app. It doesn't take long and really does help out. If you would like... You can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. 
I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram, at BoyEatersleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Book One of The People The Thirteenth District Just as the train, with a salute of the engine's whistle, careened into full view of the smoke-blackened shed that is known in Grand Prairie as the depot, the sound of cheering came to Garwood's ears. He was lounging in the smoking car, his long legs stretched to the seat before him, his face begrimed with soot and glistening with perspiration, his whole body heavy with fatigue. But the cheers coming to him in a vast crescendo that even the noise of the car wheels as they hammered the Wabosh crossing could not drown, brought back to his eyes the excitement that had been burning in them for days. A smile soothed his tired visage, and instinctively he flexed in every fibre. For a moment he tried to hide the smile, but Rankin, who had so successfully managed his canvas for him and executed that great manoeuvre on the last day of the Clinton Convention, which after 1,209 ballots had nominated Garwood for Congress, heaved his bulk from the hot, cindery plush cushion, slapped his candidate on the shoulder and said, There's nothing like it, is there? So Garwood let human feelings have their way, and the smile fully illumined his haggard face. It was a strong face, clean-shaven after the old ideal of American statesmen, that grew darker and stronger in the shadow of the slouch hat, which he now clapped upon his long black hair. Rankin had succeeded in raising himself to his feet, and stood upright in the aisle, shaking himself like a Newfoundland. He drew off the linen duster he wore, and draped it over his arm, then seizing his little travelling bag, which in contrast to his huge body looked like a mere reticule. He waved it toward the station and said, as if he had just conjured the presence of the crowd, There they are, Jerry. There they are. Garwood had risen, and through the windows of the swaying coach he could see the faces of the crowd. The men on board the train, most of them members of the Polk County delegation, which had stood by him with solid, unbroken ranks, had been yelling all the way from Clinton, and now, though it seemed impossible, that they should have any voices left in their hoarse and swollen throats, they raised a shout, that swelled above the cheers outside 
and pressing to the windows and the doors of the coaches, they challenged their neighbours with the exulting cry, What's the matter with Garwood? Outside there rose an answering roar, He's all right. But the Polk County delegation, as if demanded confirmation, yelled again, Who's all right? And then the crowd rose to its tiptoes, and the answering cry was of such immense unanimity that it made the very platform shake. Garwood. The train had stopped and Garwood was being hustled toward the door. Some impatient fellows from the platform outside, who had mounted the steps of the car, now pressed in and stretched their bodies incredible distances across the back of seats to grasp Garwood's hand, to seize him by the coat and call in his face. Good boy, Jerry. You're the stuff. He was oblivious of the progress he was making, if he was making any at all, and the conductor, although he had caught the contagious spirit of the triumphant Polk County delegation soon after the train left Clinton, and had shown Garwood the deference due to a successful candidate, began to be concerned for the time he was losing, and said with smiling indulgence, Gentlemen, gentlemen. Big Rankin then squeezed himself in front of Garwood, and waving his little bag dangerously before him, crushed his way out, drawing the others after him in his turbulent wake. Meanwhile, the passengers in the train looked on with good-humoured toleration an American crowd always excites in those not participants in its moving enthusiasms and mildly inquired what town that was. When Garwood gained the platform of the car and the people at last caught sight of him, the cheering suddenly attained a new pitch of intensity and a band clustered near the rotting log where the hacks made their stand, spontaneously crashed into Hail to the Chief. The band played the piece in furious time, and the man who performed on the tuba seemed to have taken upon himself the responsibility of voicing the whole enthusiasm of Polk County. But to Garwood, to whom the strains came across that tossing mass of heads and hats and faces, the music was sweet. He felt himself suddenly choking, his eyes filled with tears. He could not have trusted himself to speak just then, though the cheers were being more and more punctuated by cries of speech, speech, 
Luckily, the man behind him, urged by the brakeman, for the conductor, watch in hand, was scowling, began to push. The crowd in front held out a hundred arms to seize him, and Garwood was swallowed up in that stifling press of men. Somewhere in the depths of the multitude, Garwood was conscious of meeting the mayor, who took his hand when he could reclaim it from a score of others thrust forth all about him. Rankin and the delegates following, moving like a current in the sea. Garwood laughed as he was pulled this way and that, and tried to answer each one of the thousand greetings poured in on him from every side. The perspiration streamed from his face. His waistcoat had been torn open, and when someone saw this and shouted, Look out for your watch, Jerry. The whole crowd laughed delightedly at the witticism, and Garwood himself laughed with them. The crowd had been a first surprise to Garwood. The band had been another. Now a third was added by the sight of an open carriage, drawn by two white horses. He had not expected an ovation, which made it all the more grateful when it came, and as he was being helped into the carriage, with a solicitude that was a new thing in men's treatment of him, he expressed something of this to Rankin. But Rankin, who had been in politics all his days, and could view the varying moods of the populace, with a politician's cynicism replied, Well, if we'd been skinned, they wouldn't have been here when you needed sympathy. The truth flashed upon Garwood at once, and if it was embittered for an instant, his triumph when it was at its sweetest, it seemed to give him a better control so that as he settled himself in the back seat of the carriage, with the mare beside him, and Rankin filling the whole front seat, he rearranged his rumpled garments, readjusted his hat, and then looked calmly around on the crowd that swarmed up to the carriage wheels, as if they had never seen him before. His face was calm and composed, almost stern. It was the face he hoped to leave to history. As the band to whom the leader had been distributing the precious leaves of its most classical number was forming in the street, Garwood for the first time saw many carriages filled with men and women who waved hats and fluttered handkerchiefs. Now that they thought he could see and recognise them, Garwood smiled, though reservedly, and lifted his hat 
with a sudden consciousness that he himself at last was the one who was lifting the hat from the open carriage in the street and not some other man. He did not neglect to smile nor to raise his hat gallantly to each carriage load as he swept his eye along the line of the vehicles but he was not thinking of their occupants nor of himself wholly. He was thinking of a certain Surrey he knew well, from which a pair of eyes would smile as his did, perhaps be moistened by tears and his had been a few minutes before. The eyes of one to whom all this would be as sweet as it was to him. But the Surrey was not there, He was surprised, though in a way different from that in which the crowd and the band and the open carriage had surprised him. He was disappointed and felt himself entitled to a little shade of resentment, to a little secret hurt at the heart. It was the hour in the afternoon when she would be driving down to the bank for her father. He could not see why she had not come. Perhaps she felt a delicacy about the publicity of it, though he did not see why she should. But the band had swung into the middle of the street. The drum major, in his hot bare skin and tall leggings, was facing them with his hand baton held horizontally before him in his two hands. He blew the shrill whistle, clenched in his teeth, and then wheeling pointed up to Kakaskia Street and strode away for the public square. The leader trilled two little notes on his cornet. The snare drums rattled a long roll, and the band burst into See the Conquering Hero Comes. The carriage moved, the crowd cheered again, and the little procession began his triumphal entry for him. Look mad, Jerry, advised Rankin in humorous appreciation of the whole demonstration. The remark did not exactly please Garwood, and for an instant he did look mad, but he smiled again and composed his features to the dignity required of him in that hour. Some of the private carriages followed in his train, and the crowd streamed along the sidewalks on each of the street. A number of small boys trudged in the deep white dust, mingled with the band, or crowded after Garwood's carriage, breaking into a trot now and then, in their determination to keep up with the procession. Two or three of them, in order to identify themselves more closely with the affair, 
laid their dirty little hands on the panels of the carriage. Garwood felt an inward resentment at this, and when Rankin lolled over his seat and snatched the cap from the matted head of one of the boys, and the crowd on the sidewalk laughed uproariously, Garwood felt like rebuking him. He had a moral conviction that at least two other boys were swinging on the springs behind the carriage, and he would have liked to dislodge them, but he knew he dare not. In the last ten minutes, imperial ambitions had stirred within him. He began already to dream of triumphal marches amid wider scenes, with troops or at least policemen lining the curb and yet his politician's sense reminded him of the quickness with which American voters resent any little assumption of undemocratic airs, however much they may like it on a larger scale. And so when Rankin, to appease the frightened lad whose cap he had snatched, took the youngster by the collar and dragged him into the carriage, Garwood felt it would be better to laugh with him and with the crowd. The procession turned into Main Street, and so on down to the square, with its old brown courthouse and its monument inscribed to the soldiers and sailors of Polk County, though Polk County had never had any sailors. The procession ended at the Casal House, though why can hardly be told. Garwood did not live there, but all processions of that kind in Grand Prairie end in the Casal House. The band stopped in front of the hotel, and the musicians seized off their caps, mopped their brows and looked around toward Rankin furtively, thinking of beer. But Rankin, again swinging his dangerous little bag, was making a way through the crowd toward the wide door. Garwood was almost lifted from his carriage, and felt himself helplessly swept into the hotel office on the great human breaker that rolled in that way. When his feet touched the floor again, the loud cry went up. Speech, speech. Rankin turned toward him. You'll have to give it to them, Jerry, before they'll let you go and he led the way up the stairs toward the parlour. Garwood went after him, with the mayor and a self-appointed committee following, and in another minute he had stepped out on the balcony and bared his head to the breeze that was blowing warm off the prairie. As he stood there, erect and calm, 
with the little wind loosening the locks over his forehead, his lips compressed and white, his right hand in the breast of his coat, after the fashion of all our orators, many in the crowd for the first time, were conscious of how, like a congressman, this young fellow really looked. They began to celebrate the discovery by another cheer, but Garwood drew his hand from the bosom of his coat and raised it toward them. Instantly a warning shush ran through the whole concourse, the few wagons rattling by halted subtly, and a hush fell. Garwood's eye swept the old familiar square. His face flushed, his heart beat high, but outwardly he was calm, as he affected the impressive pause that adds so much to oratory. And then he began with studied simplicity, My friends, he said, in a voice that seemed low, but which carried in the evening air across the square, and fellow citizens, I am profoundly touched by this welcome. Words are inadequate to express fittingly how much it means to me. For thirty years I have gone in and out among you, as a boy and as a man, and it has always seemed to me that the highest honour I could achieve in life would be found in your respect, your confidence, if possible, your love. Your wishes and your welfare have ever been my first and highest thought. I know not what responsibilities may await me in the future, but whether they be small and light or great and heavy, still my wish and purpose shall remain the same to serve you well and faithfully. Whatever they may be, I know that nothing can ever bring to my heart the deep gratitude or fill me with the sweet satisfaction this magnificent welcome affords. You must not expect a speech from me this evening. At a later day, and at some more convenient and appropriate season, I shall address you upon the issues of the approaching campaign, but I would not even if I were physically able to do so, intrude partisan considerations upon you in this hour. But I cannot let you go away without the assurance that I am deeply sensible of the great honour you do me. With a sincerity wholly unfeigned, I thank you for it. May God bless you all. May you prosper in your basket and your store. And the speaker's eye wandered far away to the ragged edges of the crowd, thanking you again and again. 
I bid you good night. A cheer promptly arose, and Garwood bowed himself backward through the window. Rankin, standing near him, laid his hand on the shoulder of the mayor. John, he said to that executive, he'll do. Then the handshaking and the congratulations began again. Garwood stood there, at times passing over his brow, the handkerchief he held in his left hand. While he gave to men who passed him a right hand, that was red and swollen and beginning to ache. And outside the crowd, feeling, when its American passion for speech-making was satisfied, that it had had its due, went away, leaving the square deserted. The mother of the new candidate for Congress in the 13th District expressed her pride in her son's achievement by cooking for him that night, with her own hands, a supper of the things he most liked to eat. And while the candidate consumed the supper with a gusto that breathed its ultimate sigh in the comfortable sense of repletion with which he pushed back his chair, His appreciation ended there, and half an hour later he left his mother to the usual loneliness of her widowed life. Sangamon Avenue, where the self-elected better element of Grand Prairie had gathered to enjoy the envy of the lower classes, stretched away under its graceful shade trees in aristocratic leisure. The darkness of a summer evening rolled under the elms and oaks and blurred the outlines of the tall chimneys and peaked roofs which a new architect coming from the east had lately given to the houses of the prosperous. Here and there a strip of cool and open lawn, each blade of its carefully mown blue grass, threading beads of dew, sparkled in the white light of the arc lamps that hung at the street crossings. On the wide verandas which were shrouded in the common darkness, White forms could be seen indistinctly, rocking back and forth, and the murmur of voices could be heard. In bland and desultory interchange of the banalities of village life, the avenue had been laid an inch deep in mud by the garden hose, which might have been seen in the last hours of the day united in a common effort to subdue the dust that puffed in little white clouds as Grand Prairie's horses stumbled along. Now and then some Surrey, the spokes of its wheel glistening in the electric light, 
when squeaking leisurely by as some family solemnly enjoyed its evening drive. Now and then, some young man, his cigarette glowing into a spark of life and then dying away, loitered downtown. The only other life was represented by the myriads of insects feverishly rising and falling in clouds about the arc lamps, or some silent bat describing vast circles in the darkness, and at intervals swinging into the light on membranous wings, the snatch her evening meal bite by bite from that mass of strenuous, purposeless animal life. As he strolled slowly, for he wished to preserve his collar intact until he should present himself immaculate before the woman of his love, Garwood felt some of the peace of the sleepy town fall upon him. He gave himself up to the sensuous fact, inhaling the odours of a summer night, and when he turned into the yard of the Harkness home, his heart leaped. A filmy figure in white slowly floated, as it seemed to his romantic vision, out of the darkness that lay thick under the veranda. Halfway down the walk, under the oaks, they met. Jerome, I'm so proud... The pride she had felt in him still glowed in her eyes as they sat there in the wicker chairs. But now when she heard him sigh, she bent toward him and her voice filled with a woman's pity as she said, You're tired, aren't you, poor boy? Yes, I'm very tired, he assented with a man's readiness to be coddled. But then he added, it's rest just to be here. He laid his hand on hers and she drew closer, looking eagerly into his face. She needed no light other than the glow of the summer night to make his features plain to her. She looked long at him, and then she withdrew her hand, and sat erect, smoothing her skirts with an affected primness, and folding her hands in her lap. Now you must tell me about it, she said. The newspapers are so unsatisfactory. And you know I've only had the one little note you wrote me on Wednesday night when you thought you weren't coming home. They laughed now that they could do so with impunity at the danger he had been in so short a time before. So he told her the story of the Clinton Convention how the delegations from the seven counties that comprised the 13th Congressional District, his district, 
as he was already careful to speak of it, had gone there and stubbornly balloted for one, two, three days without a change or a break, until a thousand ballots had been cast, and men were worn and spent with the long-drawn agony of those tense hours in the stifling opera house. He felt a touch of the old fear that had come over him when he heard on Tuesday night that Tazewell County would go to Sprague the next day, and it looked as if the deadlock thus broken, Sprague would be chosen. And that concludes tonight's readings. I thank you for listening, and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working really hard to bring a new episode to you very soon. Good night.